Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Did Jay Powell just pivot? Welcome and good afternoon to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. My name is Sandra Stinu, your very own Chewbacca of Macro, and I'm with you for the next 60 minutes where we will digest the recent press conference with Jay Powell. And uh, with me in the studio today, I have a great friend of mine, but also a great analyst, um, Michael Kuba. Welcome to the show. Hey, Andreas. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're welcome, and uh, you obviously watched the press conference as I did. Um, you um, you said to me just before we went on air here that um, you considered it less hawkish, but not a dovish pivot. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, you know, it was interesting because I thought Powell clearly tried to separate, obviously, the monetary policy aspect, right, with the tools, with the rate hikes. Uh, versus, you know, sort of the financial stability, which is, you know, as I mentioned, the discount window and the new program they have there. So, you know, I thought he actually went a long way in terms of, you know, highlighting the stronger data. He did give a slight nod in terms of, you know, there is a possibility those were seasonally driven. But, you know, I think the fact that he highlighted the continued strength in the data while saying that it was still kind of uncertain what the banking issues would have, um, kind of, you know, threaded that needle in terms of not being hawkish, but not outright coming across as dovish. Michael, if we look at the market reaction to, first of all, the press release and then the uh, conference after that, it was kind of a roller coaster. The initial reaction was positive for equities, a weak dollar, but uh, after that, it was up and down, up and down, up and down through the press conference. And um, as of late uh, in the conference, we actually ended up with a pretty sour mood in, for example, NASDAQ. So what do you make of the price action surrounding uh, the press conference and the remarks from Powell here? Yeah, it's funny that you say that because it was basically kind of what you and I were just discussing in terms of, you know, he had a few little nuggets of information in there that sounded, you know, like he was kind of dovish. But then, you know, in a question like someone asking, you know, does your dot plot infer tie your hands to further rate hikes? And he said, absolutely not. And so I think, you know, the market was sort of oscillating back and forth of, He's dovish. Oh, wait, no, maybe they're not really backing off. And so, you know, if you look across the board, you know, if you step back from the fluctuations and kind of look where we settled, at least here in the afternoon, it still has a dovish tilt to things. You know, you're looking at rates lower pretty much all across the curve. You're looking at gold, you know, still solidly higher, the dollars off. And so there isn't a lot to point at. You know, I like to sort of sit back and look at all the different asset classes during these things and focus less on the headlines and try to parse the language myself and look for sort of those canaries in the coal mine to say, well, wait a second, maybe this isn't as dovish or hawkish as, as equities are saying. And there's really not a lot of things, if anything, standing out to me so far today. If we look at a bit ahead, what are your sort of three key takeaways from, from this press conference in uh, the perspective of the future developments in the financial markets? So for me, you know, I, I was glad that Powell acknowledged that it's sort of credit contraction could occur from this banking mini crisis, if you will, because, and he did say, you know, that could, you know, without putting firm numbers on it, actually equate to another rate hike. And so I'm glad that he mentioned that. It's actually something that I wrote in my research to clients earlier this week was that, you know, it could initially a lot of people thought that if the Fed were to pause or pivot, that they would lose control of the long end, right? Long end rates would skyrocket, inflation would be roaring back. And I wasn't so sure about that because, you know, if we think through the implications of the stress in the in the banking system and, and the credit activity, then that could have a tightening effect and that could actually lead to lower long-term yields. And perversely, that could boost some of those long duration plays that everyone is screaming about in terms of say like the NASDAQ or, or growth equities. And so, you know, for me, I think it will really just be waiting to see how all of this plays out. And Paul did sort of say that, say that and he, he really 
stuck with that as he was pressed on, on several occasions that it's too early to tell just how severe this is and the duration of this sort of credit contraction might be from the from these issues. And uh, please out there, keep your questions coming. We will uh, make sure to answer as many as possible during the next 55 minutes or so. Uh, Darius Dale will be joining us at the top of the hour and uh, we will make sure to uh, spend uh, some minutes with both him and Michael discussing your questions. But um, back to the discussion on Powell and his uh, communication on the uh, press at the press conference, because one of the things that uh, I took notice of was how he in my opinion, kind of lost it towards the end of the press conference when he was directly asked about the sort of guarantee around depositors in uh, small and medium-sized banks. So what do you make of the discussion on the deposit flights and how uh, Powell handled it? Yeah, he definitely seemed to sort of lose it, as you said, because, <laughs> you know, it, I don't think he was trying to imply too much by his comments. You know, certainly there's a broader review that needs to be done to label something as systemic. Um, what I thought was interesting, though, is that if Powell and the Fed did believe that the SVB circumstances were more of sort of the bank management, their you know, rate hedging or lack thereof, you know, that does sort of raise questions, you know, why maybe it was labeled systemic. Um, you know, as, as I think one of the journalists asked, you know, if a $1 billion bank goes under, are all their depositors, um, you know, guaranteed? And so that really, to me, is a question, you know, is it sort of systemic because of the bank run fear? So could it be applied to really any bank out there? Um, or is it truly a situation where, you know, they're looking at the individual facts and circumstances? And so, you know, Personally, uh, the journalists are always trying to draw out, you know, really stick his feet to the fire and get him to say something that he doesn't want to say. So I, I think he he really started to get a, a little antsy there, you know, and you saw it with the rate cuts, too. I mean, I forget who the, the lady was that asked the questions about, you know, the credit contraction from the banking crisis and if that could, you know, cause them to, you know, flip to rate cuts. And Again, he, he's really just trying to say, we're, we're waiting to see. And unfortunately, that's not what a lot of people want to hear. Indeed not. Brian, I actually think that we can bring up chart one on lending standards across U.S. banks for consumer loans. Um, it's one of the things that we should obviously watch in the coming months, um, given that we don't really know the repercussions of this most recent banking crisis yet in terms of how conservatives banks will be in coming quarters when it comes to giving out, handing out credit. Um, and my impression is that the Fed will basically wait and see, uh, meaning that we don't know whether they will hike or not uh, at the next few meetings. Uh, they will allow data to decide. So it sounds like the perfect recipe for volatility, doesn't it? Yeah, that that's for sure. I mean, I forget who it was that uh, posted it on Twitter uh, a few weeks ago where they said, you know, everyone claimed that they wanted a data-dependent Fed. And now that we have a data-dependent Fed, people are getting all antsy because, you know, we've seen all of this volatility around every single data print. And yeah, I mean, some of it is a bit frustrating because, you know, not every single data print with a 0.1 or 0.2 miss or, or, or B is going to alter the stance of pol a monetary policy. But um, yeah, I mean, that's the environment that we're in. And, you know, whether it's my personal trading, you know, in, in my fund, um, or it's you know, sort of what I'm writing to clients through my research, it's as much as we would like to sit back and sort of put our blinders on and say, where are we going to be in two, three years? Personally, I find that difficult um, because there, there are a lot of things that can happen in the interim. And so path dependency is a really, really big part of the game. So uh, how do you handle this volatility in uh, Strom Capital Management, your, uh, your capital management company? Uh, is it tradable, this volatility that is upcoming? So I would say it's definitely tradable, um, but it's really, for, for us, really come down to being even more patient than usual. I mean, really trying to pick your spots, sit back and, you know, be patient, looking at, at levels that you're looking at, if you rely on some technicals for your entry or exit points. Um, but it, it's really having a hyper focus on being patient, you know, in the easy times, if you will, 
some of those things get a little bit of lax and that's not great, but this really heightens the focus on that. And so, you know, I, I think I was on a couple of weeks ago with Maggie and Dave Floyd, and I had mentioned how the action under the surface, you know, in terms of equity markets, wasn't a lot to be afraid of. Um, obviously, then the banking situation hit, um, but equities are largely holding it in there despite all this turmoil. And so I don't know what that means for the long term. But for me personally, I mean, we have a very large allocation into short-term bills, just you know, prudent cash management because we don't have a ton of exposure on. Um, but it really is just if you feel the itch to put on a trade, you know, really think twice <laughs> if, if uh, it's setting up in the in the right fashion. So you've done the exact same thing as the average depositor out there buying bills <laughs> instead of depositing at banks. Um, I think that is at least one of the reasons why we are stuck amidst a, a banking crisis now. So this banking crisis with a clear deposit flight from several relatively large institutions uh, is obviously something that the Fed will need to address on an ongoing basis from here. In terms of the root cause of this uh, banking crisis, uh, my own theory is that uh, the spread between T-bills and average deposit rates at uh, US banks is simply too wide uh, and it incentivizes depositors to move the money from banks to money market funds. So as long as the Fed hikes interest rates as they've done today, they've done nothing to contain the actual underlying reasons, reasons for this crisis unfolding. Do you concur with that view and uh, how do you assess that going forward? Absolutely. I think you hit it, the nail on the head um, is, you know, really, if you look around, I mean, banks are very quick to raise, say, their, their prime rate whenever the Fed raises the rate, but we haven't seen any movement in your basic savings rates. And so, you know, at maybe 1%, 2%, it doesn't cause sort of that exodus of capital towards the money market funds. But when you start talking about, you know, four and a half, five percent spread, I mean, that's a massive opportunity, especially in larger bank balances that, you know, you're just leaving money on the table. And so yeah, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, until they do something about that, it's going to be difficult. And, you know, one of the things that I have heard floated out there that some people thought should have been addressed today was, was sort of the rate on IOER or reverse repo that's out there. And that's a valid concern because, you know, until the Fed makes, create some sort of incentive, you know, to start pulling, you know, pull, pulling that liquidity back into the market, you know, I find it to be an extremely difficult environment for risk assets. I tend to agree with that assessment and uh, it will uh, certainly be interesting whether the Federal Reserve will admit to this root cause or whatever we call it uh, of the underlying banking crisis that we are currently amidst. When it comes to the yield curve and bonds going forward, um, one of the things that we've seen in recent weeks is that the bond curve or the yield curve rather has sort of re-steepened as a consequence of less hiking expectations by the average market participant. Where do we move from here after this meeting? Um, is the curve going to steepen further from here uh, in anticipation of cuts? Or do you think the Federal Reserve managed to sort of contain those expectations for now? Yeah, I think for now they've managed to contain those expectations. With that said, I mean, even if you look at the euro dollar curve, I mean, June futures are, you know, basically unchanged for today. Whereas, you know, you look out to say December or even um, March of next year, and there's definitely an expectation of cuts still being priced in, despite what the Fed's rate projections show. And so, you know, I've, full disclaimer. I mean, back in November, I, when I was on Real Vision with James Hellowell, I talked about the steepener being one of my favorite trades for this year, and. You know, I'll stick my hand up there. We have not been in that trade, unfortunately, during the steepening. Um, you know, but I think it's, look, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I think it's a great trade because it is a positive carry trade if you're doing it duration neutral. And so what, you know, that allows you to do is not make a bet on the overall level of interest rates, but more of the shape of the curve. And yeah, I mean... Personally, I think that, you know, the lag monetary policy will continue to flow through. I don't think that some of these 
if you want to call them mini crises, whether you go back to the UK pension crisis or the banking issues here in the US, you even look at what's going on in, in some of the real estate products um, across the US. I mean, the Blackstone real estate product is a major issue in terms of liquidity. I don't think those are one-offs. I mean, if you think of crises, and you know this extremely well, Andreas, is that there's never just one aha moment. There's usually sort of breadcrumbs all along the way. And, you know, when it hits, everyone acts surprised. And so, you know, I do think there will be a lag aspect to sort of the tightening effects of monetary policy. And so, yeah, I, I do still think that the curve will will continue to steepen. Um, and I, I do still really like that trade. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Interesting. I, I tend to lean the same way. And um, one of the things I've noticed over the past few weeks is uh, how extreme the moves have been in the front end of the yield curve. Um, they are extreme even in the context of uh, the moves we saw post Lehman and post 9-11, etc. The uh, one week move in the two year treasury yield was sort of double up of what we've seen uh, after 9-11, for example, or, or after Lehman. So uh, we're talking about big moves here. And um, one thing I'd like your take on is whether it could be linked to sort of de-risking from, from big institutional banks. I mean, we know that Credit Suisse was very active as a lender to hedge funds. So could it be that we see de-risking across the board and that is the reason why a lot of people have taken off bets on on high interest rates so one of the things that it's funny that you mentioned that because i did text a friend of mine uh just yesterday and i think the two-year treasury future was down you know, 50 basis points and i and i said you know the two-year swinging 50 basis points every single day <laughs> is <laughs> it just can't be a sign of something good um you know so I do think there is an aspect. I mean, you've heard of big funds like Reddit Cool, um, Asia Macro, that was a large macro hedge fund. They shut down after significant losses. You've heard of some other out there macro funds that have taken some significant hits with this big, you know, fall in rates. And so I think that's part of the story as well that we need to also remind ourselves is how much of this is just technical, you know, repositioning by funds, levered funds. I mean, the two-year speculator positioning to your treasury futures was, as far as I know, a record net short position leading into this. And so, you know, the, there is an unwind aspect. And, you know, me personally, I wrote a, a research note back on March 10th because I was going on vacation to the Caribbean with my family. And I said, I'm personally really happy that I'll be taking this next week off because I'll be able to just read what's going on, but not really tune too much into the market because I think it will take some time to shake out in terms of what moves are real and what's just sort of, as you said, you know, fun maybe getting squeezed or, you know, a trading desk getting tapped on the shoulder from the risk department. Yeah, uh, very fair considerations uh, given the turmoil that we've seen in the front end of the yield curve recently. Uh, historic times indeed when it comes to this volatility. I'd like your take on uh, on various equity sectors after this uh, press conference as well, because uh, we initially saw a big move in, in tech uh, after the press release. And um, all of a sudden, uh, towards the end of the press conference, we, we had a big reversal in NASDAQ. Tech has been one of the few uh, outliers through this banking crisis. It has, it has performed like crazy, um, mostly due to a couple of big names performing. But w what do you make of tech? Should we move towards the end of the hiking cycle here? Is it a good sign? Well, I mean, if you look at the traditional business cycle studies out there, I mean, tech, if you believe that we're in or heading into a recession, um, you know, tech is not the place you really want to be in a recession. Um, you know, but I, again, I think it kind of comes back to the factor exposure for a lot of these funds. I mean, there's so many systematic funds out there. Everyone's a lot of people are aware of factor exposures and, you know, how growth or tech is tightly correlated to not only nominal yields, but real yields as well. And so, you know, to me, that's really been the driver of tech performance recently has sort of been, you know, the big drop in rates we've seen all across the curve. Um, you know, moving forward, I don't necessarily have a view on tech. I mean, I will say, you know, you look at semis and you look at technology and relative mm -hmm. performance 
overall price action looks great. You know, but going back to what I mentioned before in terms of, you know, some of those issues you've seen in terms of some signs of liquidity issues, I mean, even with the huge rally that we had earlier on, immediately after the decision and the beginning of Powell's press conference, you know, real estate just didn't budge. I mean, even with rates falling throughout, you know, the afternoon and they continue to fall now, real estate continues to trade horribly. And I, that's not, I mean, if it was purely a rates sort of story, you know, you'd expect sort of real estate to kind of follow along with tech and other things that are long duration in nature. And so, I don't know. I, th that's one of the things that sort of has, you know, the, the hair stand on the back of my neck that the issues likely aren't completely over yet. And so we need to we need to stay vigilant. Very good observation on on real estate relative to tech. And uh, we've actually um, received a couple of questions on real estate in relation to what you just mentioned. Um, We've come to know over the past two weeks, at least <laughs> seen from my perspective, that a lot of commercial real estate is parked on small and medium-sized bank balance sheets. Uh, so we got a question from Jason asking you, who will be willing to take on uh, credits slash new debt in the commercial real estate space in this environment? Yeah, it, you know, I, I always go back to something that I remember uh, one of the portfolio managers that I worked for early in my career said, and that was, you know, there's always a price for something. And so eventually the market will clear. It's just, will they be willing and accepting at that given price? Um, you know, there was something really interesting that I heard on CNBC the other day, which was, I think, the CEO of RXR Realty. And what he had to say was that there's $1.5 trillion in commercial real estate loans that are due to expire over the next three years. And a lot of that was issued during the sort of zero interest rate environment that we just came out of. And so, yeah, there's gonna be a lot of stress there in terms of whether they can even finance these things through through debt, whether they have to issue equity um, to, to raise that. Um, you know, so there's a lot of questions there. And as you mentioned, the other issue looming out there is the fact that, you know, I think the statistic I heard was 80% of commercial real estate loans is held by commercial or regional banks. And so, you know, you can think of sort of the regional banks really getting hit on two sides here, right? The flight of capital, whether it's to big banks or money market funds for higher rates, whatever it is, and then also the commercial real estate aspect, and it's not pretty. No, and uh, if we look at bank balance sheets uh, in these regional banks, and find a bank with a large exposure to commercial real estate on the lending side and a very weak bond book to use in this new uh, so-called discount window from the Federal Reserve, then we have a pretty toxic cocktail. Uh, so I'm, I'm personally not sure that we've seen uh, the last domino in, um, in the regional banking space, but uh, let's see, uh, time will tell obviously, and we've had an, another few interesting stories coming out just today in the regional banking space, uh, sort of beneath the radar of all this uh, noise surrounding the Federal Reserve meeting. Uh, the next question we have is um, from another uh, loyal listener to the show, asking you whether uh, this is the moment where Powell sort of cemented that even in a banking crisis, they're not willing to admit to the risk of rate cuts. Will that spill over to market pricing into the second half of the year? Yeah, so that's kind of what I was referring to in my comments is that, you know, he seemed to try to continue on the inflation story. I mean, he said a couple of times that, you know, inflation is far too high and it's going to take a long time to come down. So as you had mentioned before, you thought that, and I, I agree with you, that sort of them raising rates is sort of exacerbating this issue that we're seeing with, with banks. And so, yeah, I, I think that whether today was the tipping point or we're teetering on that point, I do think we are really facing sort of that, you know, if you want to call it the breaking point, because if these if these sort of issues and liquidity issues continue to pop up and and, you know, show themselves, then the Fed could have be forced to, you know, make a decision. And, you know, personally, I think that, you know, when push does come to shove, they will side on, you know, financial stability, obviously, mm -hmm. because that could have 
far greater tightening effects than you know another 25 or 50 basis points and so and that's part of the reason why you know i do say that i like the yield curve steepener because you know you do tend to see that steepening in a you know pause slash uh rate cutting regime and so yeah i i think we're right about that point which is why i thought they you know also looped that in with their audio um or looped that in with sort of their comments in terms of you know instead of ongoing rate increases, it, it seemed like he started to toe that line towards, you know, this is a semi-pause, um, you know, that we may not even see another rate hike from here. If we um, if we look at the market pricing after the uh, press conference here, um, he didn't exactly convince the market not to price in rate cuts uh, <laughs> through the second half of the year, to be, <laughs> to be brutally honest here. So is it even possible for the Fed to convey a message that if they move, they move towards a pause and then they will stay there for a prolonged period? Uh, I mean, personally, I always believe that the market leads the Fed. Hmm. Um, and so the Fed can try to push back as much as they want. Because at the end of the day, I mean, if the market doesn't follow the fed that's kind of when you see quote unquote things breaking you know market kind of throws a hissy fed and and the fed sort of capitulates and so you know i i don't know if the market has to come around to the fed this time um you know that seems like kind of the case last year as the fed continued to harp on sort of the the rhetoric of higher rates and you know the 75 basis points um but if you look at what the two-year yield did even before the Fed got on sort of their soapbox about inflation. I mean, again, the, the market really kind of led the Fed there too. And so, you know, one of the things I really always like to look at is sort of, you know, people will call it the Fed spread. It's really, you know, the the, the Fed funds rate versus, or I'm sorry, the two-year rate versus any ultra short-term rate Fed funds. And the two-year yield is below the Fed funds rate. We saw that briefly before, and, and that sort of started to steepen in terms of, you know, the two-year yield being right around the same as the Fed funds. But now we've seen that, you know, severely inverted again. And so, you know, I, I think that, again, that's sort of a sign of things starting to break and the market saying that the Fed, you know, you may be making a policy mistake. If we assume that the banking crisis abates from here, uh, that the measures taken by the Fed uh, via this new version of the discount window, the new lending program, and the potentially broadened depositor guarantee from the U.S. Treasury um, allows the, the crisis to sort of fade slowly but, uh, but surely from here. Do you think more rate hikes would be in play in such a scenario, or is the Fed now on course to pause in any, in any case? My personal view is that we're we're done with rate hikes, um, you know, and that's squarely due to you know both the fact that inflation metrics continue to trend lower, and you know if you strip out sort of the noise, you know, say the large bounce back. I mean, a lot of people made a big issue about January data, but I mean, even if you look back to late last year, we had a couple of instances where the trend in inflation was moving lower, and then we saw like one or two abrupt you know spikes higher. And then the trend, you know, resumed lower. And so the trend certainly seems to me like it's it's still lower. You look at things like, you know, what's been going on with oil lately, that continues, you know, to, to serve as a drag on inflation. And so I think the inflation story or the, you know, the Fed keeps saying that it's, you know, that that's the primary issue. I think that's going to continue to move in the favor of the Fed. Um, and I personally think that the banking issues are more wide ranging you know, because again, uh, it was probably like a month ago, I wrote in my research to clients that whenever you see the moves, like we saw in sort of the fixed income products, the real estate products, like we were before the banking issues surfaced themselves, that is a terrible sign for liquidity. And so, you know, I think that will have a far greater tightening effect on sort of credit conditions. And so, you know, I personally am of the view that the Fed is sort of, you know, we've reached that pausing point now. 
Great observation again, Michael, and uh, I would concur with those observations also, uh, given my positioning uh, currently leaning into bonds. I know I've um, been doing that a few times <laughs> too early already this cycle, to be very, very honest. Um, Michael, final thing I, I, I wanted to uh, to discuss with you before we uh, bring in uh, Darius Dale is um, whether the yield curve is sending a strong signal now. Uh, that's a question we get a lot after our discussion on the yield curve earlier. So when the yield curve re-steepens, meaning that the front end relative to the far end of the yield curve um, moves a lot in the direction of lower yields in the front end, is that a signal that the Fed can avoid taking notice of over time? Um, is it the true signal that this hiking cycle is over? For, yeah, so for me, I think it's the confluence of of things. So I look at both the yield curve, and then, like I said, I also like to look at that Fed spread. And you know, that wasn't something that I came up with. A lot of people talk about it, and you know, my sort of mentors throughout my career. And so, to me, it's more of the confluence of the deeply inverted yield curve plus that Fed spread that are both you know really kind of screaming that the Fed's making a policy mistake. And so. You know, one of the trades, again, that I talked about back in November, which I'm glad because it's one of the few trades I held on to, which was shorting regional banks. And it just comes back to how absolutely horrendous an inverted yield curve is for the banking sector. You know, and I have a, an episode of We Got the Message coming up where I, you know, sort of talk about that, where you know, even if you pull up, say, a JP Morgan and you look at sort of the debt securities, right, how they finance their business, it's all anywhere from like the three, five, seven, even 10 year range. Whereas their loans to commercial or mortgages, things of that nature are longer term. And so at some point, you know, it was sort of a train wreck waiting to happen. And I had no idea that SVB was coming or, you know, First Republic or any of these other issues um, were coming. But, you know, when I put all that together, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I don't think the Fed can really ignore that. And like I said, I think the market leads the Fed. And so I think it is a signal that we need to continue to pay attention to. Just a quick moment to remind you, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now back to today's analysis. Interesting. And uh, with those words, I'd uh, like to introduce Mr. Dollar Liquidity, Darius Dale, to the panel as well. Darius, it's great to see you. I love your beard, my friend. What's up, man? How you doing? <laughs> the Chewbacca of macro, as someone wrote in the comments <laughs> earlier. <laughs> um, Darius, there is. Um, <laughs> I'd like to get your take on on the press conference initially. Um, Michael and I have discussed whether Paul was hawkish or dovish, and I think we were kind of as <laughs> schizophrenic in that discussion as the market was throughout that uh, press conference. So, what do you make uh, on Paul of of Paul's stance through this press conference? Great question, my friend, and thanks for having us. It's always great to be with the uh, Real Vision audience. Um, so, just to answer the question. I thought Powell was hawkish. I thought the statement in the summary of economic projections was dovish, and both were appropriate. Um, obviously, the markets are going to hang on to every word that Powell speaks, so he has to you know, toe the line as it relates to the developments that have happened in the real economy over the, you know, since the previous Fed meeting. But obviously, the Fed statement to SEP uh, had to appropriately respond to what could potentially be a developing banking crisis. We happen to think it's probably going to be a, a banking crisis, very different than 2008 very different set of risks. So I thought the Fed on balance struck a very um, important kind of balanced tone to acknowledge that the distribution of probable economic outcomes is flattening now. Um, it's a lot less or clear, you know, where the mark, where the economy's headed over the next three to six months. Um, as it relates to like what I think are the key takeaways, and you can unpack any of these, I thought there were five key takeaways from today's uh, FOMC event. Number one, uh, obviously there's going to be some credit tightening um, in the regional banking sector and potentially even uh, broader than that. Um, and that's going to do some tightening for the Fed, at least the Fed believes that it would do some of that tightening for the Fed. Uh, number two, the extent of how much tightening that we see on the credit side 
vis-a-vis, vis vis you know, regional banks, uh, you know, sort of tightening lending standards and reducing the supply of credit to the real economy. The extent of that process is unknown at this particular juncture. So the Fed doesn't want to make any big um, changes to policy to account for the that uh, that uncertainty. Uh, number three, with respect to the summary of economic projections, they increased their inflation uh, inflation projections. They uh, decreased their unemployment rate targets, and they kept the median dot unchanged. Now, on balance, in the in the isolation of a banking crisis, you know, outside of the banking crisis, that would be very dovish. That would be obviously a step in the dovish direction explicitly, but again, when you factor in number one and number two, it's not dovish in absolute terms. And then number four, um, Powell confirmed what you and I have been talking about, everyone with a brain has been talking about for the past couple of weeks, which is these temporary emergency funding measures are not an investable inflection in the liquidity cycle. Uh, well, I think that is still ahead of us. Um, and obviously we don't get investable inflections in the liquidity cycle without seeing broader economic and financial market pain. That inflection is not going to come without the pain that Powell promised as a Jackson Hole. And then lastly, one thing I think no one's talking about, I certainly didn't see it on Twitter during the meeting, which is QT is ongoing. <laughs> they barely <laughs> even mentioned QT, but I mean, they didn't see any reason to, to, think, uh, to, 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 uh, to talk down uh, the, the, the outlook for their balance sheet uh, plans. So in my opinion, I think that's a pretty clear indication that this, this Federal Reserve wants to continue tightening monetary policy for the foreseeable future. We still have money destruction ahead of us. <laughs> that is uh, indeed the conclusion after listening to, to Paul. I, I, I have to agree with that. I, I'd like to bring up chart two, Brian, uh, and uh, get both of my guests' opinion on, on that uh, particular part of the fresh projections from the FOMC. Uh, every quarter, they ask all of the members whether they see upside risks to the PC core inflation. And I think back in December, 17 out of 17 answered yes to that question, uh, while it's only 11 out of the remaining 16 members. Uh, an interesting sequential move in the opinion of the FOMC, Darius. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, so can you, uh, I did cut out uh, during your uh, statement, but but uh, can you just repeat what you just said? Um, 11 out of 16 members now see upside risks to the coal PC inflation instead of 17 out of 17 in December. So a, a big move in the direction of disinflation in the projections. So, so what do you make of that um, from a policy standpoint? Well, I would make what I make of that is that it's incongruent with the actual data. So if you track core PCE on a on a sequential basis, if you look at it um, on a three month mm -hmm. annualized, et cetera, et cetera, we've actually started to reaccelerate. Um, particularly in the leading indicators of core PCE, like median CPI, which is tracking now 7.5% three-month annualized, trim mean CPI around 6.2% three-month annualized. You know, we're moving in the wrong direction in delta terms. So I, th I would very much disregard that expectation. Um, and it's obviously disregarded in their own summary of economic projections. They increased their core PCE and headline mm -hmm. PC inflation forecast for 2023. committee towards not acknowledging upside risks to the same extent to inflation. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, Andres, you, you cut out there. <laughs> we didn't okay. Yeah, but my, Michael, I just wanted your take on, on the move towards not acknowledging disinflation to the uh, same extent by the FMC members. Yeah, so that was, again, sort of one of those things as Darius was just, it felt like Darius was saying exactly what you and I were saying before, where you know, there was sort of some hawkish in there, but they didn't feel like they really brushed the hawkish side, but there were some little dovish wrinkles in there. Um, and so, yeah, that was one of those things that was kind of curious um, because, you know, for me, when I step back, you know, if you look at the projections again, you know, I think it was 2024, they expect uh, inflation to come down to like 2.1%. But even in that scenario, they expect their target rate to be at 3.1%. Um, and so that was one of the surprising things to me um, looking at that is, you know, if they somehow magically get down to, of course, their 2% their target, um, you know, what is the argument then for maintaining a pretty restrictive stance? Um, and so, you know, as you mentioned, the fact that they didn't acknowledge sort of the disinflation aspect, what I, what I, Thought they did acknowledge is and Powell went a long way in, in saying this is that they did feel as though that the majority of participants felt that the risks to growth 
were definitely tilted to the downside. Um, so that was, to me, kind of in a roundabout way, you know, sort of hinting at that disinflation narrative. Um, but yeah, he it was it was kind of surprising. He he didn't sort of explicitly address that. Darius, if we um, if we look at the road ahead for the Federal Reserve, QT still ongoing, um, and a new tone of voice on rate hikes with a sum and a may included in the um, in the statement. Now, do you think we approach the true end of the hiking cycle by now? And what does it mean to balance sheet policy once we get closer to that end of the hiking cycle? Mm, I'm not even, that's a great question. Uh, I'll start by answering, I don't know the answer uh, if we've approached the true end of the hiking cycle, because to me, I think it's going to be dictated by something that we don't have a lot of clarity on as, as forecasters, which is, you know, how is this banking crisis going to evolve in the, in the you know, that over the next, you know, sort of 12 weeks, you know, the next two meetings, the FOMC meetings. I don't think there's a chance the Fed is hiking interest rates in the second half of 2023 for a variety of reasons that irrespective of the banking um, panic, um, not the least of which is, you know, the, 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 the accelerated decline in economic activity that we have projected for the second half of the year. Um, you know, going back to whether it matters or not, I mean, even if the Fed does hike, all that's likely to happen is, is curve flattening uh, in the context of what is, again, a pretty pretty negative economic outlook um, that, in my opinion, I think got, got worse uh, over the last couple of weeks because I think we all get the joke around the credit tightening that we're likely to see uh, of re out of regional banks. And, and I actually um, – and, and hey, Michael, by, by the way, I had not say hi to you earlier. I really appreciate <laughs> your, your thoughts, my friend. Um, you know, I put together a few charts just to contextualize mm. um, some of the stuff that you guys were discussing earlier on regional banks, and I think it's really important to share with the broader audience. So, Brian, if you don't mind – bringing up slide 98 that I sent you earlier. Uh, there's just three charts that I'll quickly go through and give you a kind of a indication on why this stuff really matters to the broader economy. So we'll start with, um, with slide 98 there, uh, where we show you know small banks being a meaningful sector of, 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 of total assets. You know They're right around 30% of total assets for US commercial banks, and they're about 67% of loans and leases to uh, to uh, to commercial real estate lending, so it's obviously a pretty meaningful um, impact on that sector. Uh, if you look at slide 99, small banks account for nearly 40% of total loans and leases. So the, the the entities that lend to the real economy, not to the securities market um, in the U United States of America, are these regional banks. Um, you know, so again, they account for nearly 40% of commercial uh, bank loans and leases here on slide 99. And then lastly, on slide 100, um, you know, the deposit situation, in my opinion, is pretty hairy. Um, so if you, you know, you look at liquid deposits, so subtracting time deposits out of small banks, you know, they account for nearly 30% of U.S. commercial bank deposits. And those liquid deposits are drawing down at one of the fastest rates we've ever seen it down around, you know, kind of 4% on a year over year or on a max drawdown basis. And so, you know, when you sum it all up, we think these things are small banks and how the Fed categorizes small banks, by the way, is any bank that's not out, that's outside of the top 25 in terms of total assets, which is, you know, it's, it's again, as I just mentioned with the statistics, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good large group of banks uh, that have a pretty meaningful uh, kind of, um, you know, kind of meaningful influence on economic activity. So we're going to see some credit tightening as a function of this. How much credit tightening really depends on, you know, kind of the, um, you know, the the speed and the and the and the and the, the mystasticity of the financial panic. Even if it's not a financial panic, i.e., it's it starts to slow down in terms of the impact. We know there's more regulation coming. We know there's greater costs with FDI insurance on the way for these lenders. And ultimately, all that's going to be passed through to, to the consumers, either in the form of reduced credit supply or higher credit costs. So that's not going to be good for the, for the broader economy. In relation to what you just said on uh, the definition of smaller banks, Darius, uh, I can tell you that uh, Silicon Valley Bank was labeled a small bank in local media in Denmark, even though it is bigger than the biggest bank in my country, which is kind of hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in, in any case, um, it, it's, it's really good to get that overview of the importance of, of regional uh, banking um, to the U.S. economy. And I'd, I'd like to, to spend uh, 10, 15 minutes with you guys discussing how to handle the deposit flight from here if it continues to be an issue because we get loads and loads of questions on how to assess whether the running deposit flight is still a thing uh, after this meeting and i guess um uh, and i get why uh, most people care about that situation right now because it will eventually drive right about every decision maker in the uh, direction um 
going forward. And Darius, if, if we look at the, this deposit flight, uh, how do you track and gauge that on an ongoing basis? It, is it even possible to find uh, anything relevant on a daily basis? Uh, daily basis, no. Mm -hmm. We get weekly information from the Fed via their H8 mm -hmm. survey, so that's that's where we're, that's the source of our information to track that on a kind of a you know four or five day lag. Um, in terms of tracking, so I don't know that you need to track deposits because at the end of the day, what we're not trying to figure out is where the deposits going. What we're trying to figure out are where asset markets going. Mm -hmm. And trying to figure out where asset markets going, it comes down to like a, a set of you know, very important factors. I think we know the primary factors, it's growth, it's inflation, it's liquidity, you know, varying points in the cycle. They, they you know, they're, they're, those weights will change in terms of what's ranked at number one. But Brian, if you can put up our um, slide five that I sent you um, where we show our, our, our 42 macro weather model. And one of the indicators that are in, the, in this weather model on the right side of the screen in the financial economy indicator section where we track liquidity and how we track liquidity, obviously 42 macro net liquidity being what it is, but I think there's just as important as central bank and and, and, my, and the liquidity that we receive from the, 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 the fiscal authority are the liquidity that we receive from the commercial banking sector. And so we track narrow money supply either in the domestic economy or on a PPP weighted basis on a, on a global basis as well. And one thing we can see in this in this table, if you go to that fourth, that third row down from the in the right side of the table, you can see that not only is is narrow money supply contracting, or, but it's decelerating, but it's actually contracting on a year-over-year -year basis. And this is something that very rarely happens. You know, we always have an accident in financial markets or significant a severe event in the real economy whenever we have declining narrow money growth, and that's exactly what we're ha having now. And so it's no shock to our systems that we're seeing this kind of um, financial panic emerge, um, but it was gonna be an issue some way or somehow, uh, just given the conditions of, of declining narrow money supply. Michael, I'd, I'd like to get your take on the deposit flight discussion as well. How, how do you assess whether the deposit flight has, has ended going forward and what are some of the signs that you will look up for? Yeah, so to, to Darius's point, I don't know, you know, I don't have any specific ways of tracking that, you know, on a, you know, micro level, but you know, I, I, one of the ways I guess you could you keep keep an eye on is just sort of the overall money market levels. I mean, the total assets and money market funds. Um, you know, and really, you know, if you think about it, the the incentives aren't there until there's some normalization in those rates, or there's some sort of incentive, as we talked about earlier in our discussion from the Fed, to sort of at least stem those flows, whether it's IOER or reverse repo. So there's definitely, you know, I don't, other than tracking, you know, sort of the, the money market funds, that's probably the best way that I would say to track it. But I, I would agree with Darius. It's not so much, you know, tracking that flight of capital as much, you know, personally, I, I keep more of an eye on sort of just your market-based indicators of liquidity. So you know, I have, you know, in sort of my analysis, you know, various quant studies that, you know, go into different buckets and liquidity is one of those. And so some of those things are very simple as, you know, just the dollar or, or say the yield curve, because a lot of those things can have some of these more micro things baked into it that, you know, we may not be seeing on a day to day basis that other people have access to. Um, and so, you know, to, to another point that Darius made right there, I mean, if you look at, you know, going back to my point before about how the inverted yield curve is just terrible for bank health, I mean, just look at, and I don't have the chart with me, but just look at the relationship between commercial and industrial loan growth on a year-over-year -year basis versus the yield curve. I mean, it's uncanny the way it tracks. There's a reason for it. <laughs> you know, if if banks know that the Fed is purposefully purposefully trying to slow the economy, you know, and sort of that net interest income dynamic is not working in their favor, why would they be incentivized to lend at a smaller net interest income with a Flowing economy. I mean, the incentives just aren't there and it all comes down to incentives. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I can add, Michael, that the weekly numbers on net flows to money market funds are, are collectly, collected after close each Wednesday, so we will know more after midnight. Uh, the data releases every Thursday morning. Um, Darius, uh, on on the question on the asset 
uh, base of the Federal Reserve, uh, you probably hinted uh, of this new program not being QE uh, earlier in the show. And we obviously get a lot of questions uh, on that exact increase in the asset uh, base of, of the Federal Reserve after the launch of the new lending program. So please, please elaborate on why this is not QE and why it makes a difference from a liquidity perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Great question, my friend. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate you and, and Michael for providing necessary thought leadership for what may be a, a younger cohort of investors that have not seen enough cycles to understand that uh, what we have on slide 101, Brian, if you might, don't mind throwing that up. But um, emergency lending is not QE. Not only are these loans temporary, they're effectively sterilized given the fact that they have to be paid back um, in terms of collateral. So, you know, this is an issue. I mean, obviously, the discount window is shot up. It's it's exploded the Fed's balance sheet alongside the the uh, the emergency FDI funding, alongside the uh, the bank term funding program. But the reality is that it increase in the Fed's balance sheet, if we don't have the sustained banking panic, is going to continue to it's going to um, you know be reversed. Um, the next slide, slide one hundred two, where we show uh, the FHLB, the Federal Home Loan Bank advances. Um, you know, the Federal Home Loan Bank is sort of a you know, I like that I liken it to a lender of penultimate resort for the banking sector, for particularly for regional banks. Anybody who's got a lot of um, you know, more uh, real estate uh, loans and leases on their balance sheet, this is the kind of bank that will take care of that or be a back liquidity backstop for those types of institutions. And we saw last week that FHLB advances shot up three hundred four billion dollars. So this is on top of the Fed's you know um, three hundred billion dollar increase uh, in their balance sheet. So. Uh, that's a big deal. And so, you know, I think when people see the headline figures, they say, hey, look, liquidity is increasing, liquidity is increasing. And that is true, right? Liquidity is increasing. It's just going to decrease. We know it's going to decrease at some point in the future in terms of the terms on these um, on these emergency measures. And so the last chart I wanted to leave everybody with um, in terms of, um, you know, this discussion about what is liquidity, have we seen an inflection in the liquidity cycle, is slide 103. Now, I'll caveat slide 103, the first thing I'll say, which is, this is not 2008. As I mentioned, there's a whole different set of risks. We don't have the leverage cycle dynamics in the private sector, the private non-financial sector, or even in the financial sector that would imply we have some serious banking panic in terms of asset permanent asset impairment. But what we do have is a crisis of confidence and crisis of liquidity, and ultimately, you know, the the you know some segment of banks are going to be forced out of you know marginal economic activity, and that activity is either going to get migrated to the shadow banking sector or to the larger systemically important commercial banking sector, but that's not going to be a smooth process. It's going to require some slowing of economic activity, if not an outright recession. But getting back to this, um, this, this slide 103, where we show you know, that the headline of the chart is, is, is exactly what it is, which is QE is QE. Discount window borrowing is not QE. Federal home loan uh, you know, bank lending is not QE. You know, the bank's term funding program is not QE. QE is QE. And so what I'm showing in this chart is the blue line is the Fed's holdings of Treasury and agency securities from the start of 2008 through the second uh, through the first half of 2009. As you can see, not really moving until you got into kind of February of 2009. The red line shows the Fed funds rate. Obviously, the Fed was panic rate cutting, particularly in the uh, in the fall and the winter of, of, of 2008. And then lastly, the red, the black line just shows the S&P 500 with a bunch of with, um, you know, with the uh, percentage arrows up for each you know bear market rally that we experienced from Jan. 08 through um, you know the middle of 2009, and you know what you see is there's probably 10 rallies of consequence on that chart where everyone thought, hey, rate cuts this, QE that, you know, or it wasn't even QE back then. It was just the speculation on what could happen with some of the bank consolidation that we had. But ultimately, you didn't see the market bottom until that blue line, which is the Fed's holding of Treasury and agency securities, start to actually rise in a meaningful way. And so that we're not seeing that at the current juncture. We're seeing what we're seeing at the current juncture is the Fed continuing to off, offload that duration onto the marketplace, which ultimately restricts the supply of credit. You know, uh, you know, create uh, destroys uh, bank reserves in the system, and ultimately, you know, causes the shadow banking sector um, to uh, either scramble for collateral to meet existing requirements, or they just have to slow activity um, and slow their, you know, the, the incremental um, activity in terms of lending. So this is not a great situation for taking risk. I don't think we're at the bottom of the market cycle. I don't think we've re reached an investable inflection in the liquidity cycle, but obviously the bond market is looking ahead uh, as it always does into, into, into those um, outcomes. I had a discussion with a, a client of mine uh, on this topic, Darius, and um, as he said to me, well, in principle, if these counterparties of the Fed 
now lending money via uh, collateralized loans, they go bankrupt, then this will eventually turn into QE because the Fed will take the bonds that they hold as collateral. And I said to him, true, that is in principle correct, but do you consider that a great scenario? <laughs> and, and the answer to that question is obviously no, right? Uh, so it yeah. could turn into QE in principle, but only if things go really bad from here. Well, Andreas, that tells you that we're not at the bottom of the market cycle, right? Like everyone is looking for the next shot of liquidity, no different than you know a heroin addict that you walk by outside of Starbucks, right? I mean, that li listen to the nature of that question. We want banks to fail so that these emergency loans that we've <laughs> the Fed is authorized for them for temporary liquidity to, to become permanent so that we can buy Bitcoin. I mean, is this where we really have come to? And in reality, this is not where we've come to. And, and, and I, I just want to throw a few statistics at you to, to make sure everyone understands that that's not where we are. This is a Federal Reserve that has a congressionally mandated price stability mandate. They have to get in court, the PC inflation back to 2%, and it has to be a credible thought that it's going to remain there sustainably. We have not been able to ever do that out of a high inflation episode in this economy. Anytime we've had an inflation issue, we have not been able to break core PCE down specifically because obviously the Fed uses that as a leading indicator for headline PCE without a recession. You know, so you go back, I think we've had eight recessions since the core PCE time series uh, was invented. And in only one of those instances, we have decelerating core PCE growth into the beginning of the recession. In the seven other instances, you actually have core PCE rising. So you typically need to actually go through that recessionary process and go beyond the recessionary process to get that, you know, what turns out to be right around a median of about 110 basis points of deceleration in core PCE inflation. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I think if I can figure this out, and I'm a pretty smart guy, but I'm certainly not, you know, hundreds of PhD economists, which the Fed has. If I can figure that out, then obviously the Fed understands that and they know there has to be some economic pain in order to achieve their congressionally mandated price stability objectives. You cannot get to the rate cuts in the QE without the pain. I was going to middle finger. Sorry, I wasn't doing that on purpose. <laughs> but you can't get to the rate cuts in the QE and I'll skip to my thumb without the pain first. You need to have private sector money deflation in order to get the public sector money reflation. And there's this two-step process that I think a lot of investors are skipping over. Michael, what do you make of this balance sheet discussion? Do you find signs of an improving liquidity cycle ahead? I mean, I can't really put it any better than what Darius <laughs> just said. I mean, I've been writing the same exact thing. You know, it's it's not QE. You know, it's, it's short-term in nature. And so it's going to be unwound. And I mean, even if we look back at, say, you know, the COVID crisis, I mean, if you look at what, I mean, taking the fiscal response aside, I mean, there was a point there where the Fed was slashing rates and they even announced the standing repo facility. And I distinctly remember writing clients at that, at that time that it's just simply not enough. And it's, it's because it's the nature of these tools and QE are, is not the same as sort of these short-term facilities. You know, it's the short-term facilities, you're just slapping, you know, a Band-Aid on on a hole in the boat. It's not, it's not a fix for the overall conditions. And, you know, one of the things that I actually, it, it sounds ridiculous, but, you know, if you look back at, you know, sort of the end of cycles, right? I mean, when you find yourself in these sort of liquidity environments, and I've been talking a lot about that in, in terms of, you know, look at the real estate fixed income sort of type products, all the banks, when you have a liquidity event, Nothing goes up. I mean, everything becomes correlated to one, if you will, because mm. everyone is just in a mad dash for cash. So the dollar is the only thing that goes up because everyone's scrambling to get just to be able to pay their bills and, and survive another day. And so if you actually look at a chart of the S&P 500 versus gold over the past 12 months, it has been almost perfectly correlated. And I don't think that's any coincidence and, you know, you look at bonds as well. I mean, obviously bonds, you know, day-to-day -day basis can, but that is to me telling us that this is all about liquidity because, you know, it, when you look back at COVID, that was a full-blown liquidity crisis. And if you look at the events around sort of the true panic of that, bonds crashed, you know, that's what really sparked the Fed to step in there. Um, gold crashed, equities crashed. I mean, the correlations go to one and there's full-blown panic. And so for me, I mean, 
gold obviously responded a bit today, but the fact that gold reversed almost all of its, you know, or a good portion of its banking crisis sort of spike, you know, the past couple of days sort of told me that it's just another sign that what Darius is talking about is that liquidity isn't as robust as a lot of people like to talk about because again, this isn't this isn't QE. We get a lot of questions on namely gold and I'd like uh, to conclude today's show with a um, very straightforward question. Is gold a good position to hedge against this banking crisis? Yes or no, Darius? I think gold is a good position for where we are in the broader economic and market cycle. Um, gold obviously responded well alongside digital assets. We have to tip our cap. That was some bona fide uh, marketing last week for uh, Bitcoin, et cetera, in particular. Um, but the reality is gold struggles like all other assets do in a true liquidity crunch and a true liquidity crisis. Now, again, you know, our, our, our minds are sort of tainted and tilted towards, you know, March 2020, you know, kind of Q408, 1H or Q109. And we sort of assume every time we hear the word, you know, liquidity crisis or liquidity downturn, we assume that it doesn't have to be that, you know, it could be, you know, what it looked like at various points in time in the 2000 to 2002 bust. It could look like what it looked like in 98. Q418 was a prime example of that. And even um, in, in pockets of uh, in the early part of 2016. So it doesn't necessarily mean that gold has to go up throughout this entire process. And this is the whole point of building thoughtful, balanced, well-constructed portfolios is understanding that, hey, at some point between now and the start of the next bull market and risk assets, gold will probably be up in price. Is it going to be up in price on the days or the weeks or even the months where liquidity is uh, drawing uh, down in a material way, particularly private sector liquidity? Because I don't see enough people talking about private sector liquidity. I think that we're starting to. Or not we, but um, you know the, the world is starting to talk about it. But the reality is, is you know, if you look at you know just like the the, the ratio of the you know M one to the to the monetary base or, or what I would consider to be the private sector component of the monetary base, it's way larger than the actual monetary base. And so we have to be very careful about extrapolating you know the changes in the Fed's balance sheet, even changes in you know forty two macro net liquidity, and assuming that something has changed in the broader liquidity cycle, and it, because it has not. And so to answer your question on gold. I think gold is a good investment on a medium-term basis until we get to the start of the next bull market and risk assets. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work um, on every single day, every single week, because again, we have true private sector liquidity concerns and gold's going to be a source of funds in, in those moments. I think that was the longest yes I've ever heard, Darius. <laughs> you know me, I'm long. I can't, I can't make a slide deck that isn't 100 page slide long. So you know me. <laughs> but Jens, let, let me try and summarize. Um, a an evening of uh, action-packed uh, discussions on on the Federal Reserve, or an afternoon rather, uh, evening here in Europe. The Federal Reserve is getting closer to the end of the hiking cycle, but it's not entirely there yet. Especially not when we talk about the balance sheet, and we talk uh, too little about the balance sheet. Also today, uh, given that Powell sort of refrained from changing course at all on the um, quantitative tightening uh, program, and. On top of that, we ultimately got a pretty negative reaction towards the end of the uh, press conference as Powell didn't want to sort of guarantee the depositors. Of course he cannot. And uh, he kind of refrained from from answering that question as Janet Yellen did in, in Congress the other day as well. So it probably has to get worse before it gets better, both from a liquidity perspective and from a market perspective. Any final remarks uh, you want to make, Michael, on top of, of that summary? No, I mean, look, I, I agree with Darius's point again on, on gold. You know, there's a place for it medium term to longer term. Um, there's no doubt about that. I mean, working in its favor, certainly been the fall in real yields over the last, you know, several days. You know, yet, yet people have to remember that gold is, you know, sort of this three-factor model, you know, liquidity or the dollar, if you will. Um, real yields and sort of a fear factor. And so fear factor from the banks is there. Real yields look like they're moving lower. Um, and the remaining question is a dollar. So you know, that's more of a trading mindset. Um, you know, for me, again, I, I'm more of an active macro trader. And so uh, as we talked about before, I mean, I have a whole bunch of my portfolio just parked in short-term bills. And it's, 
sort of what you know both of you are saying in terms of I think the outlook for risk assets is not favorable. Um, and as far as my trading, you know, it's I found my trading activity get much shorter. And as as frustrating as that can be, because we all love to sort of put on big fat positions, and you know, everyone in the investment world wants to be told about you know how do you position yourself and just sit there and ride it out. You know, I'm. I don't, I don't do what Darius does and build well-constructed, diversified portfolios. <laughs> he's, he's far more knowledgeable about that than I'll ever be. Um, so, you know, I would just say, just don't get frustrated. I mean, if it, if it feels like things are getting much shorter in nature, that's, it's because the moves are. And so volatility's here. And so um, you just got to protect yourself because you can really burn yourself out and wear yourself down where you can't capitalize, as Darius was saying, on sort of the turn of the liquidity cycle when that finally does arrive. Lead from Michael. Bro. Michael, I appreciate those insights, man. And thank you for the kind compliment. It's right back at you. If I can uh, say one thing before we conclude, Andreas, which is, you know, if you're a retail investor, your number one job in a bear market is not to spend all day on Twitter trying to figure out your next trade. Your number one job, and I would argue it should be your only job, which is is to survive to the next bull market. You know, it's jobs, guys like Michael and myself and our clients, you know, professional investors that need to figure out, okay, how do I stay in the seat that it, that employs me, you know, <laughs> until the next bull market? That's a different that's a different whole set of discussions. But if you don't have to participate, go park a ton of your money in, in T bills and and wait it out. I mean, this is the whole point of of, of understanding where you are in the macro cycle and using that weaponizing that to understand where you are in the, in, the, in, the, in the broader market cycle. You don't need to play the game. It's your choice. You don't need to play if you don't have to play. So, you know, I'll tell you when it's time to play, but I don't think it's time to play yet. Why do you think I started podcasting in 2022, Darius? I, I had to after <laughs> throwing away too much money, but uh, kidding, <laughs> joking aside here. Jens, it was an absolute good pleasure to uh, to host you this afternoon um, for the takeaways uh, after the Federal Reserve meeting. Interesting times macro-wise, and I think volatility is here to stay for the next month. Uh, Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro, thank you for joining us. And also thank you to Michael Kuba, the um, founder of Strom Capital Management, for being with us. My name is Andreas Steno. My uh, colleagues will be back with more tomorrow on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Thank you very much for watching. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.